I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, music nerds. No theme song today because this was a last minute decision. I put this show together this morning and this show is generally all about music. So this isn't really a full on episode, so to speak, but it's a chance to listen to my dear friend, Alison Russell, speak uh, about her experiences and thoughts about the current state of things, and especially racism and bigotry in the US and Canada. Uh, I did have an episode ready to go today, but I decided to yank it because it just didn't feel like a good time to be blabbing about music, as if the country wasn't melting down all around us. Uh, I was just going to put nothing out, but then last night I called Allie and asked if she would come on and speak to me, and I'm so thankful that she said yes. Um, So if you've been thinking about supporting this show financially, I would be very happy if you would take that money this week and donate it elsewhere. Um, I would suggest a couple of places, um, the George Floyd Memorial Fund, which will support his children in the years to come or the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, Ali also mentioned some some other good places that need money now. So please consider that this week. Um, I also won't be playing any calls from listeners today, but please do continue to call in and leave comments or tell us how you're doing out there as a music person or a fan of music during the the pandemic. And uh, if you have creative ideas or listening ideas for people, still want to hear them. And we'll get back to all that and a new episode with Sarah Jarose next week. The number you can call us at is 615-375-6318. And that goes straight to message. So Alison Russell, I spent well over 100 days on the road with her last year playing in her band, Birds of Chicago. Uh, we were on the road when the pandemic spun out of control and we all came home to Nashville and I have not seen her since. And that makes me sad because she... And her husband, JT, who is also in the band, are two of my favorite people on the planet. I've actually known Allie for a really long time, going back to the 90s in Vancouver. Although she was on the road so much, I I barely saw her for a lot of years. But we reconnected here in Nashville a few years back, and now I play in her band. And I've traveled all over the world a lot with her over the last couple of years. A lot. Like... A great deal. <laughs> anyway, um, I called Allie and asked if she'd come on and talk. And we did end up with one of those, the worst Zoom connections where there's like a two second delay where it just feels like you're talking over somebody the entire time and it makes things really awkward. So I just kept my mouth shut and pretty much the whole time just kept my trap shut. And I asked her a few questions, but basically just wanted to let her talk. And I think that's what Zoom was trying to tell me to do anyway. <laughs> Um, I do want to have Allie on the show to talk about music. She has a wonderful new record that's not out yet. So I was kind of waiting for that, but that'll come in a future episode. So we don't talk about music at all. Um, you know, I've seen some of the crap that she has to go through on a daily basis 
in airports and hotels. Sometimes that shows audiences and even venue manager, owner people, um, not as often with those, but there's enough blatant crap out there that it's still shocking to little old me. Um, I figured everything that happened this week with George Floyd would have pushed her over the edge and she'd be really pissed and angry. And she is, but in a way only Ali can be, which is to see light and hope somewhere in all this and taking it all in calmly and trying to make sense of it in a, in, in only a way that she can. Uh, I figured that she'd have some insight in, into th things that we can do to actually help to change the current state of things, starting with getting rid of, you know, who, and uh, on lo more local government levels as well. And, you know, just educating and reading and admitting where we fucked up and can do better and try and change it. And that's what she did. She's got some great ideas of where to look and what to watch and what to read and where to give money if you can. And she plays a song for us too. It's a song that I've played with her probably a hundred times, but I never get tired of hearing it. So here is Alison Russell. Let's talk about this situation a little bit. I, you know, I, I, I honestly don't even really know where to start, but I wanted to ask you on, on the show just because I feel like there's an opportunity here to talk just a, a bit about it. And I don't feel like I have the best perspective on it. Obviously, like your experiences are unique in a lot of ways. You come from a, a different country as do, as do I, you know, coming from Canada that, that actually has its own set of racial issues um, that are maybe different in a lot of ways. But I mean, what's going on here is so crazy to me and so out of control. Um, I was just hoping you could, kind of share some of your experiences and um, some of your thoughts on it. And we could just sort of like open it up and just talk for a few minutes about that kind of stuff. And, and also maybe get into some things that, that people can actually do to help like physical, tangible things. You know, it's interesting that you, you talk about, I agree, you know, we're here. We are Canadians living in the U S um, we can't vote here. We are, you know, we both have green cards, but we can't, vote and I think about that a lot you know here I'm a black woman um, and I think about the the hundreds of years of struggle for suffrage you know for women mm -hmm. and people and here I am because of the circumstances of who I fell in love with and where I live now not able to use my voice to vote and that feels really hard right now and it does it feels really really um intense to be kind of bearing witness at this time in this country my which is now my adopted country where my daughter was born you know and you know I am for for those of you listening I'm a Scottish Grenadian Canadian who was born in Montreal Quebec Canada um um, in the early, you know, 1979, 1980. So I lived through some interesting times there in Quebec, you know, in 19, I will never forget the 1995 referendum in Quebec of whether we were going to separate from Canada or not and how racialized, for lack of a... I want to talk about that word too, but how racialized that got, how how much bigotry once again reared its ugly head. And I, I think what you said, you know, that we, we deal with our own set of issues 
around so-called race in Canada, but I really think it's it's all about it's bigotry is the root of it, right? And all of us, all of us suffer from unconscious bias, from programmed bigotry that we are born into. That 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 programming starts so early that we're not even conscious of it a lot of the right. time. And it's not, you know, there have been a lot of um, sort of memes and things going around kind of trying to, to, to simplify it as, as, you know, we're, we're, we're all, we're all racist, basically. We've all got to do this work of self-examination, of self-reflection, of introspection, of recognizing when we're being triggered and why. I don't know if you saw, there was that viral video that went around of a, a woman who actually turns out to be a Canadian woman living in New York, uh, who was accosted a black bird watcher um, when he asked her you know to put her dog on a leash she was in an area of the park where dogs are supposed to be leashed and he felt concerned about the dog off the leash he asked her to put her dog on leash and she was so enraged by someone that she clearly perceives to be lesser than she you know was enraged that this person that she thinks is not as human as she is asking her to abide by the rules and laws that all the other citizens are abiding by to the point that she actually starts getting very aggressive with him and then calls the police and pretends to be in fear of her life and references that he's an African-American man over and over again in this call to the police, knowing full well, you know, exactly the climate that we're in right now of the, of the intense, you know, unrest violence that's occurring between police and black men in particular right now as well. And well, I shouldn't, there's Breonna Taylor too. I shouldn't, and black people is what I should right. say. And so she knew exactly what she was doing, making that call. She knew that there was a chance that, that could have a fatal outcome for the gay black bird watching man that she decided was, you know, deserved violence somehow. Right. And, and what is, and this is, here's a woman who, it turns out, you know, this is this is sort of like the double-edged sword of social media to me. Where we're we're all in this experiment of social media right now, and we don't know how that's going to end. But one thing that I do know is that ten years ago, Ahmad Arbery's murderers aren't apprehended at all. There's no consequences. Ten years ago, there's no consequences for the policeman that killed George Floyd. None. If that hadn't been captured on video, if that didn't have the 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 the, the kind of momentum yeah. that occurred of public horror and outcry, they would not have even fired them, let alone charged one guy. They have only charged one guy so far. I know that's terrifying. Yeah, it feels almost like that. Um, that was going to go just unpunished completely. That whole episode with George Floyd, like it's. Yeah. And so this is what, this is what I guess what I'm trying, I'm, I'm not, I feel like I'm talking in circles and my, I don't know that my thoughts are terribly linear or clear about all of this because there are so many overlapping histories, issues. The, the past is very much present in, in this moment and has always been, but it's coming to this head in a, in a globally visible way because of our new technologies, you know, because we are all currently in this experiment of social media where we can all see these things happening in real time, you know, and that's, there's, 
there it's such it's such a um complex thing because on the one hand there's the absolute horror that i feel you know for george floyd's family for ahmad arbery's family that this footage of their son brother father being air, being murdered in being aired over and over again you know the kind of the suffering porn that many black activists talk about that is it's really hard and yet we don't see the kind of momentum and change and charges being pressed happening without the rallying around those horrific videos do you know what i mean so it's this it's both it, it's both things. I mean, for myself, I have chosen not to watch the videos. I don't want to watch those men being murdered. I don't want to watch it. I've read about it. I've been trying to educate myself more um, about what's happening in this country, about what's happening in our country. I mean, I obviously, as, as a woman moving through the world in this black body, I experience discrimination and bigotry constantly, you know, that that my husband as a white man doesn't experience, that my daughter as a very fair-skinned black girl doesn't experience, you know. Um, Are there specific things that have happened to you in the last in the last short period of time living here in Nashville that you could point to that are, um, that make you feel that way, that are like examples of, of just dealing with day-to-day racism? Sure, I mean, sure. There have been things like, even when I have... Um, my daughter's birth certificate and a letter from my husband um, saying that I, you know, that we, there's consent by both parents for me to be traveling with her. I will get questioned for long periods of time at the airport when I'm traveling with Ida because she's fair skinned. And I'm, there's, you know, is this your child? And I'm showing them the birth certificate. I'm showing them my ID, her ID, photos, letter, and, and there's still this assumption, well, this can't possibly be your child. You know, um, so in those kinds of ways, I will say, you know, I have been really, um, really heartened by the relative diversity of my community of musicians here. You know, I feel very I live in a house with my friend Yola, um, who I, which was owned, was owned for a long time by our friend Rhiannon Giddens. You know, I have kind of a community of, an integrated community of musicians where black artists, white artists, indigenous artists are, you know, there's, there's open communication and trust and love. And I have felt valued here. I have not ever felt um, so far in our, you know, in my kind of bubble of the music community in Nashville, I haven't felt discriminated against. Um, but my entire life, I will say, you know, things like I was running in our neighborhood and there's a family on the corner. Um, the, the dad is a police officer and I saw the police car and I used to feel nervous about running by this house because of, you know, experiences that I've had over the years of, of very negative and harsh interactions with police. And I am a law abiding person who doesn't take illicit substances and has never consciously been on the wrong side of the law. And yet I still have that fear of police. I mean, I was assaulted by a police officer in Montreal when I was 12, 
you know, and that's not something that I could report or felt that I could report or felt that I would be believed or listened to. Things that I'm not ready um, to talk about in great d- detail with my daughter yet include being sexually assaulted by a police officer in Montreal. Uh, I will talk about it with her, um, but she's six. So, you know, we're trying to have conversations about bigotry carefully, but mm-hmm. you know, I haven't gone into great detail about my personal history with her yet. But so, I mean, what I was going to say is I had, and many, many, many other black people have this instinctive fear when, you know, I see a police car. And that is very few of my white friends or family have that same fear. Um, Disproportionately policed, charged, treated with less respect, treated with greater violence, that it's just a fact, you know, you, it's kind of, and I've, I've heard people kind of try and argue, well, just as many white folks get, have these interactions, like, well, there are six times as many white people as black folks in the country. So that lets you know that proportionally black people are being targeted. There's just, yes. no, there's no two ways about it. It seems to run in all forms of that authority these days. Like, and I see it like traveling with you over the last three years or whatever, it's almost like clockwork. Like when we go through the airport, it's like, okay, Ali's going through security. I guess she's going to get pulled aside again. Every it's time. like every time. Every time. Yeah. And that's where you feel that. And it's not those individual, sometimes it's a, a, a black officer pulling me, you know, TSA person to pull. The, this is what I'm saying. The unconscious bias runs so deep. It's in me. It's in other black folks too. You know, that I was raised um, in a bigoted white family. And uh, my adoptive father uh, is an expat American man from southern Indiana who's deeply, deeply bigoted, you know. And, and I use, I, I prefer to use the word bigotry because I think it's much, not only clearer, but less loaded. The word race implies that we are different races. I'm not a different race because of the melanin in my skin because I'm highly melanated doesn't make me less of a human. You know, if someone is indigenous, it doesn't make them less of a human. That's not a different race. Those are different heritages, ethnicities, backgrounds. They're not different races. And so I I actually strongly feel that our, our language is encoded with this kind of pseudoscience long since debunked trying to promote the idea of superior races and inferior races, which it's, it's false. We all know it to be false. So why do we still use this language that carries that message in it, you know, that's implicit within the language? It's such an insane notion. Another race, like, is, is, um, I, you know, I have a, a white mother, a Scottish Canadian white mother. I have... Um, my biological father is a Grenadian Canadian. Those are not two different races. They didn't get together and have an infertile mule child, you know, from two separate races. It's human race, right? Human yeah. race. So if we can just get on that, get, if we could all get on board with we are one race, whatever our painful, painful histories and current interactions, we we don't get to chalk it up to, oh, we're just different races. 
we just can't understand right. each other. Like, no, we're hu- we're all human, and bigotry has been alive and well throughout our history. It's our common weakness that we all have to battle, and um, and that is undermining all all societies throughout history, including ours currently. The the, the human tendency toward bigotry, and we all all carry it. I've been, you know, there are so many brilliant authors and scholars and thinkers that we can look to in this time. And one thing I wanted to share with you that I was so encouraged by, I was reading this article in Time magazine today, um, talking about how several anti-racist books have been selling out, uh, you know, on on the online outlets and also in Black-owned bookstores, which are seeing a huge spike of people coming to support. And I just think, I can't think of a more positive outcome or byproduct of the intense upheaval that's happening right now um, than to have this clear indication that people are trying to educate themselves. And that's really, that that's the heart of it. Nobody is free from unconscious bias. Nobody is free from the programming of bigotry. I mean, our entire culture is founded on white supremacy, male supremacy, Christian supremacy, um, you know, gender identity, supremacy, all of that. Like those are, when we talk about the norms, when I call, when I think of myself or call myself a minority because I have dark skin and I'm a woman and I'm bisexual, you know, but I get to hide that one because I happen to have fallen in love with a man. So I get to move through the world with the privilege of seeming like a heterosexual, you know, like all of these layers of privilege that all of us have. And even though, you know, my history is, being raised in foster care and with a bigoted white family and with a very intensely abusive, predatory, bigoted, uh, American expat, white adoptive father, even with all that, I still have so much privilege. The way I speak, I speak English without an accent. That's a privilege. You're accorded more respect in the world if you speak English without an accent. You know, or without a visible, what, what's, what, what do we, of course it's an accent. I have a Canadian accent. I have a, you know, raised by Scottish grandmother with professor, English professor, antiquated language kind of an accent. But it's, it's a way of speaking that is given more respect than, say, my sister, who when she moved from Grenada at six years old had a beautiful Grenadian island accent and was vilified for it, mocked for it shamed for it to the point that she watched 90210 and copied their the way they spoke to erase to erase that part of her cultural heritage from herself because of the shame that she was was heaped on her you know and these are things that we don't i never even had to think about it i didn't have to think about it until i met my my, you know this is my my grenadian sister from my grenadian uh, father i met that side of my family when i was 30 and, you know, just the, realizing these things that I never even thought about. I was born in Canada. So I grew up feeling just as, you know, I didn't have to feel like a first generation immigrant. I wasn't, I wasn't treated that way and I didn't feel that way. I just felt Canadian, even though I experienced uh, bias and bigotry because of my color and the texture of my hair. I was able to just move through the world as a Canadian without questioning that. Mm-hmm. And my sister, my whole paternal family had to leave Grenada when Ronald Reagan 
invaded their country and the U.S. in, in 82 invaded Grenada. Um, Maurice Bishop, who was, the, was, was slaughtered. Lots of people of the, the party, my father supported a socialist party called the New Jewel Movement, were slaughtered. My father was thrown in jail, my, uh, my biological father. My stepmother lost her job as a teacher because they had you know, supported the wrong political party, so-called. And they had to leave to make a, new, to, to make a better life for my half-brother and sister. You know? And I, of course, I didn't know any of that. As that was happening in the early 80s, I was in foster care in Montreal. And then I was living with my you know, deeply schizophrenic mother and her horrifically abusive American expat husband who crossed the line into actual sexual abuse of a child for the first time with me. And I don't think that it's unrelated that he grew up in a culture where black bodies were considered chattel for hundreds of years. I don't think it's coincidence that he was able to cross that taboo line with the black child that he adopted, that that was easier for him to do than if I had been a white child, you know? And that eventually when I found myself able to charge him after many years, after, you know, leaving home at 15, it took me another five years before I could, before I felt empowered enough to charge him and uh and he got a very light sentence and i think about imagine if i had been a white child and he were a black man would that have been the same light sentence Absolutely. the mind boggles mind boggles and there's so many layers of this right and we're and i'm not free from bias myself nobody is and so what if we i think part of part of what's going on there's so much shame and denial bound up in all of this that increases the harm when when we it's just like when people feel deeply shamed it can turn to anger so quickly right it can because they don't want to feel that people i don't want to feel, nobody likes feeling that and we find it, it it gets you know it gets transformed into violence and anger if it's not faced and dealt with it's why i mean we see cycles of abuse it's why so many children who've been abused grow up to become abusers themselves. You know, if you don't face these things and really look at them and sit with it and accept that this is a, a part of all, all of our history, you know, whether it's directly affected us or not, it's, it, it, it twists and sickens the oppressors and the oppressed. You know, it's, it's a two way, it's, it's a family. It's, it's yep. not, you know, I think about I think about this in America in particular, the degree to which um, there's such extreme partisanship here. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is very different between America and Canada. That here, it's this very intense identity. It's so intense. Two two parties, and that's it. You know, that's all that pe- it's. It is such um, a, a, dem- a democracy and a republic that is failing so many of its citizens. And there's such desperation, you know, so why is violence erupting here more extremely right now in this time of pandemic deprivation, shutdown, lost jobs, fear, the black community being disproportionately affected by the virus, as well as by poverty, as well as by harsh policing and police brutality, all of the, you know, why is it so extreme here well, you've had for centuries. I mean, the, we're not the Civil War. The damage of the Civil War isn't over here yet. This is, yeah. this is a continuum. This is a 
this is a, a, a cumulative situation, you know, that ha- that's happening right now. It's not springing up out of a vacuum. It's okay. not, oh my God, how could this happen? This is shocking. It's, to me, it's almost miraculous that this has not happened more, you know? And, yeah. and I see that as hopeful. The fact that there hasn't been more violence, to me, is hopeful and speaks to the fact that the vast majority of people don't want to be violent with each other. The vast majority don't. Mm-hmm. The vast majority, the vast majority of the protesters are having a peaceful protest. And yet what's being amplified and what's being plastered over and over again across all of our social media outlets and media outlets are the most extreme cases of fringe violence. Right. You know, and there's I mean, the Minneapolis mayor has stated that the, the, the first instances of violence were carried out by white supremacist groups. I mean, white there's white supremacist domestic terrorism is the scariest thing happening in this country right now, in my opinion. I thought Obama had an interesting thing to say. I think it was yesterday or whenever it was a couple of days ago where and he pointed out something that to me as a Canadian living in this country, I forget, because, partly because I can't vote and I'm not active in that sense, but like people can, people can really engage in a local political way, way more in this country than we can as Canadians. You can vote for your sheriffs, you can vote for judges and all this stuff. We, we, that's so unusual to me, but like, that's something that really, I think needs to change. Like this country really needs to step up. I don't want to turn this into an anti-Trump tirade because, uh, I just, you know, obviously that guy's an idiot. But all these like lower level local politicians are, you know, the sheriffs and things like that, those, those kind of roles play a huge part in all this problem that we're having too. And there is this, just this deep disenfranchisement on the part of so many Americans where they feel like their voices don't count or count count, or maybe they don't realize how powerful those local levels of government and voting are and how important for day-to-day things. I mean, there's, I would, um, that's one of the things that I hope that we see coming out of some of this, this intense upheaval currently. There's, there's an, a very strong youth movement. There are young black activists, you know, you can, I mean, this is all of, all of this information is a Google search away for all of us. You know, I think that's one of the ways that we can all get and get, and that's what sort of I've been trying to do now is educate myself about who are the the activists, the black activists, the white allies, the indigenous activists, who are the people in this country who are on the front lines of the anti-bigotry movement, you know, and how do we amplify those voices? How do we learn? And that, and, you know, I see this this article in Time Magazine is so hopeful of these books by authors like Ibrahim Kendi and Jacqueline Woodson and uh, Tanahisi Copes and Paul Mendez, um, you know, and Paul Ortiz, an African American and Latinx history of the United States. Um, Paul Butler, uh, Ijioma Nuoma. There are all of these incredible scholars, authors whose work is there available to us and that we can need to all take it upon ourselves. The moment is calling for all of us to take upon ourselves greater self-reflection, greater study, learning from these 
people, these voices of color, these scholars of color who are on the forefront of what is happening, you know, um, on the forefront of changing the status quo that clearly needs to be changed. And so, you know, that is, we've been, you know, last night we, we, um, or on June 1st, we played a show for one of our favorite venues um, in Chicago called Evanston Space. And, you know, we chose to donate half of the proceeds to George, to the George Floyd Memorial Fund, you know, because he has young children and I want them to have every opportunity to go to school and to live with good food and care and all of the things that, um, you know, losing their father this young, I just can't even, I mean, I, it, it's really hard even to just think about that. And so that's, that's a, a tangible thing that we can do to help. We can support their family and support organizations like Color of Change who are lobbying at all levels of government, who are helping people of all stripes and colors and creeds get involved to change policy, you know, because that, because it, of course, I wish we lived in a world where every person could be perfectly unbiased and unbigoted, but we don't live in that world. I, we are all embattled within ourselves, you know, of, of these, these need, I'm sure that Canadian woman in the park thinks of herself up until now, thought of herself as a very progressive, liberal-minded person who would never knowingly treat a black person differently than a white person. And yet, what did she do? You know, and why do we know it? We know it because he had the brilliance to film it so that people could see. This is not, racism isn't just, you know, masked strangers in the KKK, you know? It's right. not, that, that's the extreme, that's one extreme end of it. That's one extreme end of bigotry. But that's not the, even the most, in some ways, that's like, oh, that's so clear. We can all be united against thinking that's bad, you know? But the much more insidious and, and deadly in some ways are, are, the, are the, the seemingly, you know, the ally kind of bigotry that comes up. This is, here's one, one example. My beloved grandma, Dr. Isabel Roger Robertson. She was a, a highly educated Scottish Canadian woman. She taught at McGill University for many years. She taught English. She taught teachers to teach. She taught comparative religions over the course of her career. She was huge in the literacy movement in Canada. She was a thoughtful, uh, deeply Christian woman. She consciously tried to fight bigotry within her own self. And yet, and she loved me. I know she loved me and I loved her. She was probably the most, um, you know, influential person in my life. I think she felt very guilty about my having been in foster care and she gave me the best of herself in many ways as a nurturing, caregiving person. And yet even my grandmother, we were, but we were going on a picnic and she was going to bring some watermelon and as a child I didn't like watermelon and I said oh I don't like watermelon and my grandma without skipping a beat without understanding how brutal the statement was said I thought all black people liked watermelon oh wow that was my grandmother said that to me you know and this is what this is what we're battling right that is a that she was as woke 
as a person of her generation could possibly be could possibly be you know she had gay friends she left her church when they fired um their, the, the, when they found out the choir director was gay and they fired him she left her church in protest you know she this was as woke as as a a woman of her heritage and generation could be and she loved me and she still said i thought all black people liked watermelon i'll never forget it it's it's you know it and this is what we're ta- so we can't only rely on each individual citizen to be their best selves at all times we have to battle the systemic bigotry to have better outcomes for the entire community to have harm reduced for the entire community and specifically and especially the communities of color and indigenous communities and do you see a way that we can come through this without just like letting it pass over us and and you know like having some real impact that makes things different and better going forward instead of yeah uh, this is what this is what i'm saying why i keep making reference to this time article is i see this as such a hopeful sign and i think ways that we can we can inform ourselves we can have greater self-reflection and acceptance of the fact that we all carry unconscious bias and program bigotry in our very dna and rather than getting bogged down in shame and denial having acceptance for that and learning how to recognize when that kind of unconscious bias and bigotry is being triggered within ourselves that's you know sort of step one on the on the micro inner then on the macro outer i think we have to continually uplift and amplify voices of you know people of color we have to support organizations like camp zero who are using research um, based ideas to change how we police in this country and that starts on all levels of voting and even though we can't vote we can we can all we all have a sphere of influence you know whether you're a, a huge pop star or whether you have a podcast or whether it's just your neighbors and your friends you know or like we all have a sphere of influence and we can have these conversations we can have the hard conversations to start changing the status quo, which is not serving anybody, which is contributing to a deeply dysfunctional, violent mm-hmm. society, you know, and that doesn't, that's not good for anybody, you know, and that, and it comes right. to the fact that we are all interconnected and what, if, if one community is suffering unduly, it is going to affect and spread to all the communities around it. So even, even if it's just for us, the selfish reason of wanting to protect one's own family, then it still behooves each of us to educate ourselves and to f- be a helper, whether that's finding the helpers and supporting them financially or through spreading the word, um, having conversations. You know, everybody will find their level of engagement of what is realistic for them. You know, I we have a shared home here with... Um, Two, three of us are black, two of us are white. Um, we are all musicians. We have all chosen uh, to quarantine together. We're not engaging in the physical marches for health reasons. And because I'm a parent and I 
don't think it would be responsible for me to put myself knowingly in harm's way right now when I'm, you know, we need to be there for our child and everybody, everybody finds what feels safe or right to them. And yeah. there's no, this, this kind of idea of the call out culture, shaming, outrage. I think those things are distractions and I think they detract from actual deprogramming happening, relearning happening, education, communication, change comes from education, communication, self-awareness, and then figuring out ways that we can connect with our communities around us and ways that we can uplift what is working. Yeah, I think it's okay to tell people that it's that it's okay to not be out there demonstrating if that's not your your thing it doesn't work for everybody and there is a big underlying health concern too right now yeah but we can support the protesters by um supporting organizations like national bailout the bailout project you know the minneapolis fund they've been overwhelmed and inundated with support which is such a hopeful sign to me it means that there is there is this engagement happening and the connections and the communication and the awareness around organizations like Camp Zero who are battling the police brutality problem. You know, and even, I mean, let's, let's speak to that for one moment. The, n- none of these groups, nothing is homogenous, right? There's no, I don't represent all black people. You don't represent all white people. We don't, it's a bunch of individuals we all live in community, though, so we are trying to learn how to be better community members, better citizens, more connected with each other, more caring. How do we build empathy? How do we build compassion? How do we build compassion and resilience? You know, how do we support? You know, so I think everybody finds what resonates for them. You know, f- but find something that resonates yeah. with you, whether it's, um, you know, I'm going to become part of the the people who are who are trying to increase you know to get out the vote or i'm gonna i i i'm able to do financial donations or i'm not able to do that but i can use my social networks to amplify the voices of these people who are doing things that i find positive hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, there and it really is. I mean, that's the thing. Like, we, it, there's an unprecedented access now with our current technology. I can Google right now. You know, black activists at the forefront of the anti-racism movement, and I will get a wealth of resources that I can and voices that I can amplify 
and organizations that I can support either through petition signing or donations or sharing the, the information about those organizations. Right. It's all important. It's all important. It's all important. And people find their path of what, but, the, but I think that's the most, I would say that's the way forward is engagement, you know, everybody engagement, everybody and whatever ways and levels that we can and amplifying of the people trying to help, you know, as Mr. Rogers said, find the helpers, be a helper in whatever way you can. Yeah. And that is all deeply important work and, and part of what will change this, this untenable status quo that we are trapped in, you know, yeah. and, and demographics are changing. You know, that's in some ways I, I do, I have for a long time felt like we're kind of in the last gasps of the centuries long white supremacist systems, you know, like we really are because the world is, is changing. Demographics are changing. My family is part of that. You know, and there's so much fear and and hatred and denial bound up in it all. But when we can, we're strong enough to face our past. We're strong enough to change. I believe it. You know, and, I believe it. And this, it's 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 really hard to be bearing witness and be part of this time where the violence is once again coming to a head. But, you know, I find it so interesting with how many people I've seen make comments like sort of trying to um, discredit all of the peaceful protesters because of a few violent people yeah. who are by far the minority. The, the vast majority of protesters are doing, I mean, I, there was some footage from one of the protests in Denver that was so powerful of everybody lying on the ground with their hands behind their backs for nine minutes, which is what happened to George Floyd in his last moments of life. And it was, that was a powerful, powerful protest. I, I feel hopeful when I see, you know, the, the policemen in Newark joining the protesters, taking a knee, you know. Um, yep. And there's been so much rhetoric of trying to shame all the protesters because of the violence of a few people. And I just think how... It's 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 disingenuous. It's hypocritical. You know, here we are. We're in a country founded on violence, and we all know it. You know, we're in a country, both Canada and you know, speak for our country, Canada and the U.S., uh, founded on the disenfranchisement and mass genocide of Indigenous peoples. You know, that's what we're all we're all that legacy. That's the truth. You know, and I see little hopeful signs of even just. Something as you can think of it as lip service on the one hand, but I think it's significant, even just changing, officially changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. That's significant to me. It's not just lip service. It's we're living in a time, even movement, Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement that that couldn't have happened 15 years ago without the current technology that we have that even though I'm so conflicted about the experiment of social media it has been so important for connecting communities that felt completely disempowered before, you know, and yeah. whether it's the Me Too, I mean, I, the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, these are all things which were inconceivable, even, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, inconceivable, you know? Yeah. 
when you think of the movies and, and things that were just acceptable, date rape as funny in these movies, drugging someone and raping them as like a funny thing in a 90s, you know, teen flick. That was, just, and we watch that now and we all crawl with discomfort. And yet I can remember when I was a 14 year old being abused, watching, you know, one of those John Hughes movies with my friends and laughing. You know, right. it's, so we can change. We, our perceptions of what's acceptable are, have been changing vastly. There's a, a book by Steven Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature that um, I started reading when I was pregnant with Ida and I was just feeling overwhelmed by the violence of the world and the dysfunction in our world. And I got, it, it, it gave such a great overview of our human history and of the decreasing trend of violence even though it feels insane it's a much less violent world than 200 years ago right. or 100 years ago so we are having over time this positive downturn of violence you know we it, we it's so slow that you don't notice it it's slow and it's yeah. painfully slow but there it, progress is occurring and we're part of that now we're part of it and we're part of it in how we choose to educate our children in the curriculums that we have in schools and the way that we teach history. I didn't even know, you know, and I, I'm, I'm part of a project called Our Native Daughters um, with Rhiannon Giddens, Layla McCalla, and Amethyst Kia. It's a sisterhood that I am so grateful for and that I've learned. I've learned so much uh, about the Black diaspora, about American history, about my own heritage you know, through some of the explorations that I began with that project. And um, we, you know, we, there, there's, there's, there's endless work to be done. There's endless self-education, list, just listening to each other without a knee-jerk kind of, I reject what you're saying because it makes me uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. Like just listening to each other, active real listening where you sit with your own discomfort of whatever you know whatever that is trying to actually listen to someone else's experience i mean i have very well-meaning friends who've said things to me like um you know oh well there's no such thing as racism anymore or that doesn't happen or canada doesn't have racism problems or you know and 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 i just think part of me it's almost beautiful but it's if it wasn't so dangerous it's all i wish that that was true and i'm glad i'm thrilled that there are people who perceive it that way that way who've gotten to move through the world without seeing it or feeling it but now those people are having to see it and feel it too Mm -hmm. and it's important you know it's important and i've i've seen i've also read a lot of rhetoric of kind of shaming people for not having done the work before this. That is not helpful. I believe that is not helpful. Um, I get, I get feeling just outraged, tired, angry, sick of having to shout the same truths over and over again. I get all of that. And I, I understand it, but I ultimately feel like the kind of shaming is so, so deeply unhelpful. People, can only see from where they stand. People are not, if someone wasn't ready to educate themselves before, you know, we can't, it's a, it's complex. People are complex and no one should ever be punished for reaching out for knowledge. No one should ever, I believe, be punished for having been ignorant and then trying to do better. Their attempts to do better should be uplifted 
and supported, in my opinion. It has to be now, I think. It, we can't, it doesn't help anything to be like, why the hell weren't you here before? Why didn't you get it before? Well, they didn't. And now they're getting it. So, yeah. so better late than never, you know? Yeah. That's my, that is my strong belief. Better late <laughs> than never, you know? Because if we just, because what happens? The moral what, of the story. What's the outcome if you're just like, no, I'm mad that you didn't get it before now. Screw you. There, we can, there can never be understanding or dialogue. Like, there has to be. We have to. We ha- I mean, that is where I, I struggle with forgiveness. You know, I struggle with that from my childhood, my history, mm-hmm. um, with my biological mother and my adoptive father. That, and, but I've had to, 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 to function at all. As, a, as, an, as now an adult and a mother myself, to function at all, I've, I have to practice forgiveness to the best of my ability or I will be eaten up with anger and shame. So that, that's a cancer that there's no cure for if we don't have forgiveness, you know. It shouldn't be all on Black people to do the work. I've, heard, I've, read, a, I've, I've, I've read a lot of of activists who feel that way and and of course not um but there is a strange my my circumstances the way i grew up of not ever being able to comfortably be part of an us you know the us versus them i was not accepted in my white family that i grew up with for you know because of the color of my skin i have you know i've been called the n-word by uh, great uncle arthur at one of our family reunions I was not accepted easily in the black community in Montreal because I was a so-called Oreo, you know, white on the inside, black or black on the outside, white on the inside. That's a kind of an insult that's uh, a, a lot of other um, black nerds that I've since talked to had leveled at them as well. You know, you're not being black in the right way or what these, you know, the first time that someone told me it was a shame that I was so dark and got the bad hair oh. was my friend's Jamaican mom, you know? I was like, what? You know, that came, I mean, that is internalized self-hatred. That is internalized yeah. programmed bigotry. That it's, it's everywhere. It's all levels of our society. And I don't think there's any percentage. I don't think there's any sunny path forward if we are forever shaming one another about wrong ideas we've held at different times or ignorances that we've been blinded by. I think the only sunny path forward is to to keep un, to keep self-examining, to keep unlearning, and and learning better knowledge, getting a better grip on our history, the real history, you know, not the white supremacist. Let's glorify every enslaver. You know, we have to face all of the parts of our history, and in order to in order to have a healthier present and a more hopeful future, you know, for all, for all our kids, for all their kids. I mean, there's so many levels of it. It's not just, and then when you start thinking about, when you start thinking about privilege and we, we all have it in North America, no matter what group we're part of, we're all, um, you know, the symbolism of that policeman's knee on George Floyd's neck. Like we as you know, members of the of the so-called first world, you know, of the tiny percentage gobbling up the resources of most of the planet, 
you know, that we are all part of in North America. We have our knee on a lot of necks, don't we, collectively? We do. And that, these are all, all of these levels of bigotry, all, all of the times that we tell ourselves that it's okay to decide that someone else's humanity or some other group's humanity is lesser, that all of the people working for slave wages in factories in China or India, that their humanity is lesser somehow, that that's okay so that we can have cheap clothes and cheap electronics. You know, it, these are, there are so many levels, and that is why I talk about anti-bigotry, you know, rather than I think we, it, it is helpful to see it, to see that that's what it is. It's, it's not a black and white dichotomy. Right. It, it's, it's way more insidious and complex and far-reaching than that. You know? And deeply, deeply ingrained. Deeply, deeply ingrained in all of us. Oh. And I think once we can accept that that's true, then we can start trying to change you know, and, and do better. I know you have to parent, run away and parent, but, but um, you were talking about communication and engagement and, and you'd mentioned you might want to sing a, a song. Is that still the case? Yes, I would. Yeah. I would like to sing a song. Um, this is a song called Kashiba um, that I wrote during the, um, the sessions for the Songs of Our Native Daughters record that I made with the group Our Native Daughters with Rhiannon Giddens and Helen Helen Amethyskia. Um, as I, you know, I referenced this earlier, I met my, my Grenadian family when I was 30 years old. Um, and that has been a pretty amazing journey of discovery. Um, there, my Aunt Denise has uh, really rallied around trying to excavate and reclaim our family's history as much as we can. And she was able to, with the help of a historian, trace our, our George family lineage back to uh, an ens- a woman named Kashiba who was um, captured in Ghana, enslaved, you know, survived the Middle Passage and survived several bills of sale and wound up um, in Grenada and died still enslaved. But she is the matriarch of uh, our, our George clan. And I often... When I'm feeling overwhelmed um, with current events and you know life as we know it now, I remind myself that we're all standing on the shoulders of incredibly powerful and resilient ancestors, you know, who went through worse things than we will ever be called upon to bear, um, and that that is we can grieve the iniquity of the history, we can grieve all of those things, but I think it's really important to celebrate that strength and that resilience and to recognize that all of us, you know, whatever our individual heritage is, come from long lines of survivors, you know, and that strength to draw upon. So um, yeah. this is this is for in tribute to Kashiba. Yeah. 
Kashiba, Kashiba You're free now, you're free now How far your spirits blow Blood, your blood Bone, your bone By the grace of your strength We are home By the grace of your strength we are home. We are home. We are home. We are home. Beautiful. Thank you, Allie. Thank you. It's so lovely to talk to you. We miss you. I miss you too. Well, thank you for talking to me today this has been so great to listen to uh, some of your stories and and thoughts on all this stuff and i deliberately didn't talk to you about music because i i I really want to have you on the the show to talk about music you know but uh we'll do that we'll do that another time time. Uh, this felt like the thing to do today okay well uh we'll talk soon and thanks again for doing this and i'll um love you steve love you too Thanks for tuning in today, everybody, and listening. That was Allison Russell from Birds of Chicago, which is a band that I've been very happily playing with over the last few years. And um, I will hopefully have Allison on the show sooner than later to talk music. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with an episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.